We're just going to consider one chapter this morning. We're making our way through 1 Samuel, if you're a guest with us. And we've been taking different sections depending on the, how the narrative goes. And this morning we're just looking at chapter 8 because it's a significant pivot point in the book where Israel demands a king. It was the world's book, World Magazine's Book of the Year in 2017. And it's a fascinating interpretation of the politics of the book of 1 Samuel titled, The Beginning of Politics, Power in the Biblical Book of Samuel. And the authors describe the book of Samuel as, quote, one of the most penetrating accounts ever written of the internal workings of human politics. Henceforth, the writers say, until the exile, the Israelites will be unable to confess resolutely that God alone is king over Israel, apart from any human victory or partners. This sad loss of ultimate spiritual loyalty was at the expense of a more pragmatic national politics, end quote. Politics is talked about a lot these days. It's headline news almost everywhere you look, right? We are a nation that is absorbed in the political world in many ways. And so let's pay particular attention to what the chapter of 1 Samuel 8 teaches us about human politics, because it has much to teach us. 1 Samuel 8, as I mentioned, is beginning an entirely new section. It's the story of Saul, the first king of Israel. And this section stretches all the way through chapter 15. And we will consider this week Samuel's first speech, which is basically a warning to the people of Israel that in choosing a king, they will be sorely disappointed. And next week, we'll look at the beginning of Saul's kingship and how he began to serve the people. And then in a couple of weeks, we will, Lord willing, look at Samuel's farewell address, his retirement speech, so to speak, in chapter 12, where he again reinforces many of the warnings that he says here in chapter 8. Now, as you know, this time period that we're dealing with in the book of Samuel, as I've mentioned in previous sermons, is during the time period known as the Judges. There's a book in the Bible, the sixth book of the Bible, seventh book of the Bible, the Judges, right, right after the book of Joshua. And this period of Judges is one of the horrific, most darkest moments in the life of the people of Israel. Uh, during that time period, Israel wasn't really a nation state. They were more like a loose confederation of tribes. There was no standing army, no centralized national structure. And God raised up a number of different leaders called Judges during this time period, and Judges 2 offers a summary of what this time period was like. We read, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, that's the false gods. So the uh, anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered Him. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. But whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices of their stubborn ways, end quote. And that cycle repeats again and again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. This cycle is sin. The people sin. They are subjected to servitude by a foreign state. They are crying out to the Lord, and the Lord sends salvation in the form of a judge. Then it just repeats. Sin brings... Israel back into servitude again. They cry out to the Lord again. God raises up another judge to save them. Lather, wrench, repeat. 
the cycle just keeps going on and on and on. And the story of 1 Samuel 4-7 to fits this pattern. Sin, remember, last week, or two weeks ago rather, when the ark was traveling throughout the land of the Philistines and, and also back into the people of Israel, it was bringing judgment everywhere it went. And what happened in chapter 7 last week? The people cried out to the Lord. And the Lord delivered them. And Samuel is even said to be a judge at the end of chapter 7. We're told in chapter 7, verse 6, that Samuel, quote, judged the people at Mizpah. In chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And Samuel, as a judge, seemed to deliver Israel into a time of peace during his lifetime. In chapter 7, verse 13, we read, So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistine all the days of Samuel. But these things start to go wrong again. Samuel's getting older. Samuel's sons no longer follow the ways of the Lord or the ways of their father. And so Israel demands a new judge. Actually, they demand a whole different system. They want not just a judge, but a king like the nations have who will deliver them from their enemies and who will fight their battles for them. Why do they ask for a king? Why not ask for another judge? We're going to see the reasons that Israel wanted a king this morning and the reasons that really in our heart of hearts, we kind of want one too. Because as we'll see in the hearts of the people of Israel is a lot of the same stuff that still resides in our own hearts. So we're going to look at four reasons this morning why Israel wanted a king and why we tend to want one as well. Number one, we forget the frailty of man. We forget the frailty of man. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 again. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So in this passage, the people of Israel decide that it's time for a change, for a change in government. They believe that a king will be better suited to bring them the security and the prosperity that they desire than all the judges who have served them for so long. We have a tendency to assess our problems pragmatically rather than spiritually. Our tendency is to assume that there's something wrong with our methods. The battle didn't go right. Okay, get the ark. Oh, Samuel's son failed? Get a king. It's easier to find a gimmick than to cry out to God. It's easier to think the problem is outside of us, fixed by a change in leadership, than to think the problem is inside of us, fixed by a change of heart. And instead of looking to God and trusting in Him, we prescribe the form His help should take. We're not content with seeking God to save us. We desire direct to direct Him and how and how how and will how and when He will save. Our proposals can all sound reasonable and logical and plausible and totally godless. The cycle of the judges alone should have shown Israel that putting our trust in men was a vain proposition to begin with. Over and over, the cycle was repeated as judges came and judges went. No one was able to ultimately save them. And then in the first three verses of this chapter, we're introduced to another pattern that we've already seen before, and this one is in the book of Samuel. 
the story of Eli's being repeated. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read that the sons of Eli, remember the priest in Shiloh, were Hophni and Phinehas, and they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. They served in the priesthood with their father Eli. Samuel was growing up in this house as well. And what happened to that family? Well, they were ultimately judged by God, both the sons and their father, for their sacrificial and sexual immorality. And just as Eli had two ungodly sons, now Samuel has two ungodly sons. Now, why is this significant? Because before asking for a king, Israel should have remembered the frailty of the leaders God had already given them, even the good ones. With Eli, we saw a priest in Shiloh who overlooked the sins of his sons and got fat on what belonged to God. And this eventually led to his judgment and death. And with Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, we met two boys who despised the Lord and were judged by the Lord by being killed in battle. And with Samuel here, we see a ray of light come shining through the darkness. While Eli's house was crumbling and decaying, Samuel was ministering and growing in the favor of God, in favor with men in the presence of the Lord. He eventually led Israel into a period of peace under God, and he led the people into repentance and renewal. However, that didn't last. Just like Eli, Samuel grew old. And just like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons turned away from the Lord, even as they were appointed, like Eli had done, into leadership. Now, we're not told exactly when this takes place. Some commentators fault Samuel here that he brought his sons into leadership knowing the kinds of sons that they were. I find that difficult with It could be. We're not told when he installed them. But I find that difficult considering Samuel's integrity up to this point. Not that Samuel was ever sinless, and not that he's sinless here, because I think he does several things in these chapters to come to kind of not want to get out of leadership with Israel that much. And he kind of holding on a little bit and trying to fighting Saul at different points throughout the narrative. So Samuel's not sinless. He is righteous, and he does desire to serve the Lord, but he's not sinless altogether. We don't need to view him that way as though he's a pure hero and Saul's the pure villain. That is not the way the Bible presents heroes and villains. There's much more tension and much more gray in terms of the way the Bible presents some of these characters. But we do see, nonetheless, the subtle temptation in Samuel to be hereditary in his views of leadership, much like the ways Eli behaved. Maybe his sons were the only ones he could trust. A lot of times you see that around powerful leaders, this nepotism that grows around them, family members being brought into leadership because they're the only ones who are decisively and ultimately loyal. Samuel's at least partly responsible for putting his sons in office despite Deuteronomy 16, 18, and 19 specifically saying that those appointed have to reject bribery. And as has been said, even the best of men, like Samuel, are men at best. Eli's household was ungodly, but Samuel, Eli's adopted son, was godly. And even as Samuel was godly, Samuel's sons were ungodly. We are frail creatures, dear ones, and grace doesn't run in bloodlines. Forgetting the frailty of man can lead us to put too much hope in men. 
This is why God tells us in Psalm 146, 3 and 4, Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish. Or as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and depends on flesh for his strength. Instead, as Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That was the lesson that Israel needed to learn and that they would eventually learn, but not right now because they forgot the frailty of man. And when we forget the frailty of man, it can lead us to trust in them too much. Secondly, not only do we forget the frailty of man, we crave the approval of others. We crave the approval of others. In verses 4 and 5, we are given a glimpse into the heart behind Israel's request for a king. Look at those two verses with me. 1 Samuel 8, 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. Look again at chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us and we shall also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Why doesn't Israel want the king they have? Whether it's Samuel as the temporary judge or God ultimately, it's because they want to be like all the other nations. In other words, they no longer want to be Israel. Israel was called to be a holy nation. That is a people unlike the nations, set apart by God, to be like God, to be with God, to represent God. But here Israel wants to be like the nations. They don't want their identity to be tied to God as the king. They don't want their identity to be distinct as a people under God's rule. Rather, they want their identity to be identical to what the other nations have. It's a complete overturning of who they are. Israel was called to be a nation whose behavior was governed by God's Word, but instead they're allowing their behavior to be governed by what other people do. They were, opposed, they were supposed to be different and distinct, but instead they desire to be the same and conform. They want to fit in with the way the rest of the world operates. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, revealing what life is like under God's law. Now, instead of the nations learning from Israel, Israel's learning from the nations. But it's so easy for the people of God to allow our behavior to be governed, our identity to be shaped, and our message to be dictated by the culture rather than the Word of God. And how, how do we see this happening? How do we see the church being co-opted by the culture? Do we want to be like other nations with a king that fights our battles for us? Do we see God's people giving up their integrity because they're willing to give over control to leaders in whom they can place their trust regardless of the cost? For many people, our politicians in our culture, whether they be red or blue, riding on donkeys or elephants, function as quasi-gods. On both sides of the aisle, we want to elect a president who will finally succeed in making things right. We want a leader who will fight our battles for us. We want a leader who will make us like the nations we admire. We just differ on whether to look like Scandinavia or the glorious America from a past that never existed. We seek to identify with parties and factions, seeing ourselves as the heroes and others as villains. 
We excuse the sins of some candidates while magnifying and mocking the failings of others. Every time there's a political election, people get excited or fearful, believing that this is the opportunity to finally elect a government that will finally fix things and bring the peace and prosperity and justice we crave. Campaign ads make promises that the new heavens and the new earth couldn't fulfill. Politicians talk like messiahs. They pledge to lead the country and root out corruption and deal with reckless spending only to frustrate the populace, have their corruption uncovered, and pass an even bigger budget. Second verse, same as the first. As God's people, we're called to a higher standard, dear ones. We are citizens of America, yes, and we pray and we work for the peace and prosperity of our beloved nation, but we're citizens of heaven first. And primarily... His kingdom is not of this world, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. But it would appear that a whole lot of professing Christians don't actually believe that. I'm not advocating for a withdrawal from politics, but I am calling for its significant sidelining in the hearts and minds of the church. We must not play the game the way the world plays the game. If we do, we compromise the truth, we fail to represent Christ, and we undercut the purposes of the gospel by selling our souls for the porridge of political influence. Don't give up your birthright, church. It's a terrible trade-off. Thirdly, not only do we, do we re, re, forget the frailty of man, not only do we, appro- we crave the approval of others, but thirdly, we reject the authority of God. That's why Israel wanted a king. God lays it out, crystal clear, what's going on in their hearts in verse 6. Notice what we read there. But the king, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, which Samuel, Samuel was no doubt, no doubt feeling a little bit, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to verse 8, all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaken me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them, which he's going to do in just a minute. Let's skip down to verses 21 and 22 at the end of the chapter. And when Samuel heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. So God sees their request as a rejection of him. The king and the kind of king they wanted, according to the text, was rooted in idolatry. It was just an old God in a new form. In chapter 7 last week, we saw that the people of Israel forsook the Baals and forsook the Ashtoreth. Now they're asking for him all over again, just in the form of an earthly king. Have the people learned nothing from what having God as their king looks like? In chapters 4-7, through seven, we, see, we saw the Lord independently and capably defeat all of Israel's enemies, didn't we? When the Israelites engaged the Philistines, they lost 3,000 men. When they engaged the Philistines with the ark, they lost almost 10 times as many. Yet, when God goes into exile for them in chapter 5, He single-handedly judges and punishes Israel's enemies Himself. He decapitates Dagon and inflicts the land with tumors in every single city. With no presence of Samuel at all, 
in chapters 4 through 6. When the people have no prophet to lead them and no priesthood to sacrifice for them, they do have a king who will fight for them. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And everywhere he goes, he gives his people victory. The irony is that the people want a king who will fight their battles. And if chapter 7 proved anything, they already had one. Now they're trading him for a human king just like everyone else has. And if chapter 7 served as a contrast with chapter 8, chapter 4 serves as its parallel, right? Chapter 7, Israel looked to God alone. We saw this last week. They looked to God alone in repentance and prayer for deliverance and God delivered them. But in chapter 4, they trusted in something else. The ark. And it led to their defeat. Now they just switched arcs. They switched the ark for a human king. Their request is rightly seen by God as for what it is. It's a failure to trust His power to save them. God has rescued them from the Philistines. He's given them peace in a remarkable way, but it's not enough for the people. They do not want to trust God. They want a king they can see. They want, as Andrew Peterson says in his Behold the Lamb of God album, they want a king on a throne with power, with a sword in his fist. They want to live by sight. They want a human king they can see instead of a divine king they have to trust. See, living by faith is just plain impractical. That turning the other cheek stuff can only work for so long, right? Dear ones, this is nothing new. From the garden onward, we have rejected God's rule. We would rather have a king like the nations around us than a king in heaven above us. But is requesting a human king wrong? Is politics wrong? Of course not. Actually, Moses predicted a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and they then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So having a king is not even a human representative of God's kingship was not wrong. The problem was why they were wanting it and how they were pursuing it. In fact, God lays out the instructions for the king that they're supposed to choose in, in Moses' words. Moses says, choose one from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, and he may, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so they may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what was that? God was just saying, choose a king from among yourselves who's godly, who loves the Lord, who pursues his word, who submits to his word, and who seeks to use his platform to serve and bless the people. That's all that a king should be. And that king would represent God's divine kingship in Israel, it wasn't wrong. The desire for a king wasn't wrong. The problem was the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king like the nations have. The king that they were to set over themselves was the king that God would choose, that would be a man after God's own heart. This king was to be marked by devotion to God. 
Now, why did God prescribe it this way? Dear ones, we know this. Like people, like priest. Or like priest, like people. We cannot separate biblically character and competency in leadership. The Bible won't allow us to do it. And everywhere the church is buying that lie. This is why pastors have to have...
this in Jesus' name. Amen.